It's the Bob McCowan Podcast. You can hear it on your favorite podcast provider or if you choose on Sirius XM channel 167 at uh, 6 o'clock Eastern time. That's 3 Pacific. Thank you. Would you like to give Mountain Time? Four. Four Mountain Time. Well, Mountain Time is important. Central is five. Central is five. Atlantic is uh, it's at uh, seven and in Newfoundland, 730. Oh, sorry. Newfoundland, Labrador, Labrador, 730. But what about um, um, Bora Bora? Bora Bora, well, I, I'm going to have to go to my computer. I'm going to take a guess that it's yeah, going to well, be. It's about as relevant as you rattling off true. every. Well, That's yes, everybody true. knows the time zones in Canada. You don't have to show How off. How many time zones are there in Canada? Five. You sure? Yeah. I think there might be six. Where's the other one? Yukon. Yukon time. Yukon has a separate time zone? I think so. Well, don't think. I could be wrong. First time today, but it's early. Really? I haven't met my wife yet. I haven't met my wife for coffee yet, so I know I'm going to be wrong again. So, uh, That was some hockey game last night. There would be people who would say that uh, there's a chance they wouldn't score 15 goals in uh, the first four games. Uh, well, I, I, I a, think a lot of offensive talent, but Calgary scored 15 goals in the whole series against Dallas. There you go. They scored nine <laughs> in game one against Edmonton. Well, you know, their coach likes to play it close to the vest. He would rather see it 2 one than um, nine, six. It'll be interesting <laughs> to hear what kind of reaction the two coaches have um, at practice today if they didn't say anything after the game last night, because I don't think either. I think coaches in general are unhappy when anywhere close to that many goals are scored. Don't you think? I think you're, I think you're, you're, you're probably right. You know, you know, and listen, the fact that it, at some point in the third period, uh, after Calgary was up five, two, six, two, gosh, and it was six, six, you're going, Oh my goodness gracious. Yeah. That was the, that was as crazy as a, 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 a thing you've seen in a long period of time. But I truly believe the Oilers spent so much energy physically and mentally to get to 6-6. They had nothing left after Anderson made it 7-6. And the rest was history. Well, if you go back to the 1980s, uh, where there were um, several of these series, Edmonton-Calgary series, mm-hmm. It was an era in which a 9-6 hockey game wasn't all that unusual. It didn't happen every night, but it happened occasionally. And almost invariably, the Edmonton Oilers were a part of it. And one of the guys that provided um, a significant portion of that offense uh, joins us today to reflect on uh, his new career and what it was like, uh, those series against Calgary, and uh, what he thought of last night's game. Mark Messier joins us when we come back after these messages. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, 
from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey, it's McCallum. It's Shannon back with you. Um, our guest needs no introduction. We'll give him one anyway. Uh, Mark Messier, uh, 25 years in the National Hockey League, um, a lot of years with those uh, Edmonton Oilers and has been through a few of these battles of Alberta. Uh, now with uh, uh, ESPN. We get to call him rookie this year. Bob. We can't, you, know, you don't get to call him rookie very often. So, hey, rookie. 61-year-old rookie. <laughs> well, how's that going since we're on that subject off the top? You enjoying it? Loving it. Uh, was was excited to start. Didn't know what to expect, but uh, ESPN has welcomed Chris and I in with open arms. They've been incredible, help, incredibly helpful, to, to be honest. Uh, you know, I, I, like I said, I didn't know what to expect, but it's not easy. Uh, you know, I've spent my lifetime listening to people do broadcasts and color and and whatnot, and uh, until you until you sit in the chair, you realize there's a lot going on, and how to uh, articulate a point in a very short amount of time is is not easy. But uh, wow, what a what a great group of people, and uh, really enjoyed it so far. Uh, what's the most daunting thing that su- has surprised you about it? Well, I think you know, I, I t- well, I, one of the reasons I took the job is because of my experiences uh, that I thought I could, or, you know, really be helpful in trying to let the people in that were watching the games into some things that are happening that they might not realize or see for themselves. But to me, the, the, the biggest challenges have been that there's not a lot of time in order to really articulate any one point. So, you know, you can't delve into a long winded way of getting to what you're trying to describe. And that, that has taken some getting used to, but uh, I'm starting to feel more comfortable. You know, I, I want to do a good job and, you know, I'm trying to do a lot of homework and, Obviously, when I watch telecast now, I watch a lot differently to pick up certain points and all that. And people like yourself have been so generous in helping out and giving tips because you've been in it so long. So no, I've really appreciated the response and the people that have reached out to help me. Well, here's the here's the magic words on, on our podcast, Mark. Take your time. <laughs> Take your time. Because <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in the other world, it's... Uh, you know, uh, just tell me the time. Don't build me the watch. <laughs> well, I still think I still think there's a show that that can really delve into some of these finer points and the nuances of our game. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot going on in these in these playoff series, especially when it gets into seven games. And you know, not only from the strategic warfare that's happening and changing in every shift to every period to every game, but also the psychological warfare that happens between teams and players and all that that never really gets talked about enough, but it has a big impact on the direction of the series and each one of them go. Well, you have the great advantage of other than when he, uh, when he undoubtedly talked to you about uh, um, his experience in broadcasting, you don't have Shannon in the truck or in your ear. Um, and, and I know well, you a, haven't. That's a whole other thing, Bob. That's a whole other story with your earpiece in there. And people talking to you when you're trying to talk. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You got to get used to that. Don't you? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, uh, we wish you good luck with it and continued success with it. I'm glad you're enjoying it, at least for the moment. 
Um, so actually, before we go, just one more question. Are you prepared to tell stories about what happens behind the secret curtain? That really, that's because that's what, you know, that's why you're there. You're Mark Messier. You know, I, I, you know, just as an aside, you know, it's 28 years this week. You started playing that New Jersey Devils series in the Eastern Conference final that ended up with a your guarantee in game six and then Stefan Matteau in game seven. But there's got to be a nugget in that series that is pertinent to what happens in a game six or seven this year that you could tell that people would say, wow, I've never heard that before. That is the coolest thing. Are you prepared yeah. to do that? Yeah, I think I, I think. The, with the way that things have trended nowadays with social media, there's not a lot of secrets out there anyways. In the old days, we you know we it used to be whatever happens in the dressing room stays in the dressing room. Right. You know, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, same kind of thing. But nowadays, uh, you know, with uh, with the agents, the, uh, the amount of relationships that are out there, that anything that happens in the dressing room now seems to get out one way or another. Um, so it's really hard to kind of contain all that information. Uh, you know, one of the big things in Edmonton back in the day was that, you know, you know, we just tr- we try to protect each other's uh, we each other like like our family. Uh, you know, and you don't air your dirty laundry uh, in in the public with your family. And and um, but that's changed now. So I think you know, telling things that have happened, and I think there's some things that you know should be stayed you know confidential, just just for the for the sacredness of it or whatever, maybe. But uh, for the most part, uh, I think the stories that uh, you know help me and the teammates and the interactions that we had along those cup journeys are really compelling. And I think they can be helpful for not only for the uh, players and interesting for the people watching, but also for the players and young boys and girls that are playing the game to maybe help them in their own trajectories. God, I was looking for dirt on Sather. That's what I was looking for. You know, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I'm guessing that you have limited time space and not one of the hardest things to do is condense anything you say to a, a tight timeline. I know John has talked about it when he was in the truck yelling at guys on air and saying, I never yelled once, Bob, just for the record. Okay. Well, there is contrary evidence <laughs> to support my theory, not yours. I can assure you, uh, Messier probably even heard about it. Um, you, you know, Shannon was a screamer, you know, that uh, yes, huh? it, listen, well, uh, Mark, don't believe this crap. I, I can appreciate that though, because what I've seen so far is that there, there is, uh, you know, the, the production of any one of the telecasts, there's some pressure in there as well, uh, you know, getting it right and getting on cue and there's timelines that have to be met and uh, there's a lot happening. And, uh, but, you know, at the end of the game, everybody comes out and, you know, shakes hands and good job, uh, just like a team. So I, I can imagine where sometimes it's no uh, place for, for a sensitive person as Rob Schultz used to say. you got to be able to suck it up from the boss and, and, and uh, take the criticism or constructive criticism the right way. Uh, take note, Bob. <laughs> well, uh, look, at I've heard it for 40-plus uh, years. Uh, when guys get out of the game, you know, one of the reasons I stopped doing athletes while they were uh, talking to athletes while they were playing the game was because they were so defensive, so afraid of telling any stories. I won't say the minute guys retired, but after they'd been retired for a little while, they tend to relax, open up a little bit, understand that the stories that they're prepared to tell really aren't, you know, all that deep and all that critical or anything. So um, I've been through it many, many times. 
Well, we're, we've been programmed from a very early age that uh, team comes first. Uh, it's just something that's been drilled into me from the time I can remember. My dad oh, I know. taking me practice. And so, you know, you never want to kind of stand out as someone that's uh, venturing away from that in the game of hockey. Now, now we understand at the same time now that, that selling the game and selling the team and selling the, the, the product is, is an important part. Uh, and, and if you're able to do that without kind of, you know, um, jeopardizing that, uh, you know, that unwritten rule, then I think it's awesome. And I think we're starting to see guys doing a better job of that, you know, with their social media posts and the way they're kind of really, I don't know if, if it's the right thing to say that they're kind of showing who their personality is off the ice. I think that's important though, because I think that draws the fans in there. It gives the game more exposure. And, and, uh, and I think we're starting to see that it's, as a culture, as a hockey culture, we're starting to see it's okay for, for players to be their own individual uh, person on and off the ice. So well, that's, I, I, that's hard to grasp, though, when you think about it, Mark. Over the years, I mean, you, you, you listen to the way that you used to speak when you did interviews and, and Wayne and, and Sid uh, and even, even Kale McCarr now. Uh, you know, it's, it's team first. Uh, it, it's always about the team. It's not about me. Uh, and it's it it it's so ingrained that uh, because half of that I would assume is because you don't want to go back into the dressing room and then be isolated when somebody says, "Hey, what was that about you being good?" It was us, right? Well, there's no question that that's true, John. Uh, and and it is because nobody can be successful on their own. Nobody can win alone. Nobody can have the success without everybody around them, everybody playing their part and, and paying attention just as much as, you know, I was lucky enough to play for 25, 26 years and have guys around me that wanted to win, uh, you know, just as bad. They had just as much passion, you know, uh, would, would sacrifice themselves for the betterment of the team. I mean, you know, you know, you know, and I'm for that. I'm forever grateful. Uh, the gratitude that I had when, when I retired was, was so immense that, uh, you know what I mean? And so when you are talking about that, uh, about the team and, and, uh, and how you scored a goal or the success you're having, you, you can't have that success alone. So, of course, you got to talk about all the external things that are making it happen. And, and uh, sometimes it comes across as a little cliche and sometimes a little bit too um, cookie cutter. But in reality, it is the truth. And at some point, there's got to be a good marriage of that, in my opinion. I think there's got to be a way that, you know, and I think social media has done that because away from the rink, you can kind of show the kind of person that you are, the interests that you have and the hobbies that you like. And I think that just kind of makes you more humanized and shows your personality a little bit better than just the standard interviews that you do kind of in between periods or right. after games or whatnot. I used to use the phrase media speak a lot and talk about, um, you know, um, the fact that the league and the individual teams do take at least a little time to tell the players how to deal with um, Q and A's, not unlike this. Did you have that right from the beginning of your pro career? No, uh, not early. It's not super early, but uh, you know, there was a lot of education going on even from the time that, uh, you know, I started back in 19, you know, 79, you know, gambling, uh, drugs, alcohol. I mean, there was an educational process that was happening back then. Of course, it's gotten much better uh, as, as we've gone along. And now with technology and all the tra trappings that can 
find yourself in trouble and all that. And for as far as the media goes, Bob, um, you know, we I made a comment earlier this year that uh, you know when they were having problems in Edmonton that you know both Connor and and Leon. Um, you know, went to a press conference and I said they were unprepared to have that press conference because they didn't know it was, I think they knew it was coming, but they weren't prepared to answer in the right way. And every time that I talked to the media, me personally, I realized it was a chance for me to articulate what we're feeling to our fan base, which mm-hmm. was, which is critical. And it doesn't really necessarily matter what the question being asked is, it's only what the message is that you want to deliver to the fan base. And so and feeling comfortable enough and and confident enough to not answer certain questions that are given. You don't need, you're not obligated to answer every question that's given to you when you go up there, but the team in my, and I wasn't, I wasn't really critical of the players. I was more critical of the team that they didn't prepare those kids to get up there and know what they were going to face and how to handle it properly. And if they did, Mm -hmm. we wouldn't have had the spat that we saw with Leon because Leon would have been able to handle it much differently and it wouldn't have escalated to where it did. So I think, you know, the media is a huge part of our, of our business. Uh, It's a huge part of the fan base. It's a huge part of the organization to, to, to talk to your fan base and tell them what's going on inside your dressing room and get the, the, anything that's be, that's, you know, negative or positive, steer that commentary to your fan base. So when you go into the arena there, there's a good confident feeling uh, amongst the whole building and, I realized that was a very effective tool and a very important tool uh, in our championships. Uh, and, um, and I think that, that, you know, I think, you know, when you talk about media training and all that, that's why it's such an important factor nowadays for these young players. You know, Bob just tweaked me to something because the, he talked about the league and the teams um, wanting this. The leagues and the team, the league and the teams are actually on opposite sides on this one. Because the league wants personality. The league as a whole wants personality. The team wants control. <laughs> so that, that's a really, that, that's a tough position to put the players in. Because what the, what the league wants is they, they want to be able to sell your personality and all the play, personality of the players, not just to your local market, but across the two countries and around the world now. And that's not what the team wants. The team wants you to make sure that you look after that 50-mile radius of the arena, correct? Well, I think that the teams probably want both. Uh, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say the teams don't want it, but I think, you know, just from my experiences anyways there, you know, one of the things that I look back on now at our team in Edmonton, how, how diversified a, a group of individuals that we had. And, and that's what, but that's what made the room so colorful. I mean, we had Kenny Linsman and Glenn Anderson and Kevin Lowe. And then of course we had Wayne and then Essa Ticken. And then we had a doctor to Randy Gregg. Then we had a bunch of other folks that were just <laughs> as crazy as we all were, and and but you know I I I would have loved to have had taken that team and and fast forward it and had it in the social media <laughs> see what would have come out of that uh, out of those years because uh, you know we were having a lot of fun and you know we were uh, you know uh, an interesting collection of of guys uh, not only obviously because of talents on the ice but uh, whatever we was bringing to the to the table uh, off the ice but uh you're right there i, I think that the, the 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 nhl knows that uh you know the marketing um for the game itself and then the individuals uh you know always has to improve and it's come a long way you have to agree with there john it's come a long way and as for the teams i don't necessarily think they're dissuading the players from doing it but i think that at the same time 
the, the you know they, they have a responsibility to your point of their concentric circle right and to really kind of market that area and all that but um, I, I just think it's come so far uh, from both uh, that I think there's a common common you know, ground there somewhere for the league, the players and the teams that uh, will eventually will eventually get there to even grow our game bigger than it already is. And we, we know how much has grown over the last 10, 20 years. Absolutely. Uh, did you read your press? Did you pick I, up a newspaper now and then? I did. Um, and I realized that it was very important for me to do that. One is um, by the time I really started to do that, um, I had a healthy understanding of what the media was and, and uh, I was able to absorb it and not uh, get reactive to it. Uh, why it was helpful for me as a captain is I was able to understand what was being written about our team, uh, what was being said about our team and what was set, being said about every individual. So for me, it allowed me to, to uh, you know, help with the narrative that, you know, and in, in the, in the, in the, in the words that were being uh, sent out from our messaging from the team to the fan base and, and anywhere else. But it also helped me with the players to, that if I knew someone had a bad article written about them or they were getting negative press, I could I could go to that player and, and help them kind of work their way through it and not to take it personally, you know, you know, instead of getting, you know, let, 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 letting it be effective, just get more determined, uh, and so there's a lot of ways to use the media, and that's why that's why I did it uh, personally. And it, it was very helpful, actually, when I came to New York because, you know, there's so much media here, so many newspapers here, so many different opinions. Everybody w- w- is trying to get a headline, so someone will write something that's controversial just to get a headline. And so compartmentalizing all that and really kind of have enough experience there to use that you know you're always trying to position the media to, to use it as your advantage whether it's a day off in between playoff games or during the regular season you know we saw Mike Keenan you know when we were going through a little bit of a losing streak in 94 say that he was going to try to sign Dennis Potman and of course the whole narrative for the next 10 days was the Rangers assigned and Dennis Potman and completely forgot about that we'd gone on a five-game losing streak so um, you know, there's certain things that uh, ways that uh, you can use the media um, uh, to your advantage, and I think it's it, it was really helpful for me as a, as a captain to do that. Well, so so you know, it's funny because right now I, I truly believe there's more pressure to play the game in Canada than there is in the United States. Was there more pressure for you to win in Edmonton than in New York? Um, one of the greatest things that when I um, asked to be traded to New York was I wanted to go to the original six team. And then of course, why not go to New York? If you're going to go to the original six yeah. teams, I, I really wanted to come and live in the city and experience Good idea. City. Yeah. And all, all the things. And of course the 54 or the 50 at that point, the time a 51 year uh, drought, uh, all the challenges that went along with it. But, but uh, you know, what I was really surprised at is that I felt an enormous amount of pressure coming to New York because of the history and, and the, you know, generations of fans had never seen a Stanley cup. And I thought coming to New York, maybe there wouldn't be that because for me, that was one of the greatest things about playing in Edmonton, my hometown and playing in, in a, in a, in a Canadian city is that there was that external pressure on you every day, whether it was on the ice or off the ice, people were watching, people were paying attention, people cared, people had passion. And what you did on the ice was directed directly affecting their lives. And so having that pressure 
I, I think was one of the things that really propelled the Oilers to greater to do greater things. And when I came to New York, I felt the same kind of pressure externally um, that that uh, that that I felt in Edmonton, which to me was the most um, um, rewarding. I not not say rewarding, but the most interesting thing when I went to New York because I didn't know what to expect from that regard. Right? I, I thought maybe they were, the Rangers would get swallowed up in the in, in everything and all the other sports in the city and all the entertainment and all that, it wouldn't matter as much, but boy, was I wrong. Cause it mattered and it mattered a lot. And I felt the pressure when I came here. Um, this will come as a shock, but um, I occasionally had confrontations with others because of things that I said, um, <laughs> hard to, hard to believe, um, hard to believe Bob. <laughs> as gentle and nice a guy as I am, uh, but like Don Hello? Cherry, Hello. Don, yeah, Don Cherry and I didn't talk for five years. Gary Bettman and I didn't talk for five years. Now, thankfully, that five-year rule applied in both cases, and we got over it. Um, did you have guys that you wouldn't talk to? Well, you know what? Uh, I, I didn't uh, because I I, um, I realized from a long time ago that uh, it, for me to carry around grudges and, and whatnot uh, wasn't helpful for me. Um, in any way, uh, it, it didn't, um, it wasn't productive. Uh, it was draining. Um, and also I realized that everybody has a job to do. And the most important thing that I realized that any one journalist or anybody that had an article or anything, what their opinion was, didn't necessarily mean everybody reading it agreed with their opinion. Sure. And that was very helpful for me because I realized that I, I didn't have to take their, sometimes they were right and deservedly so. And, and of course you got to accept that, you know what I mean? When, when bad things, if you didn't play well, you did make mistakes and someone writes it. I mean, that's just part of the game and you got to suck it up and you got to take it. If someone writes something that isn't necessarily true, you didn't deserve it. And they wrote it for whatever reason there, the same thing has to apply is there, you, you know, you got to suck it up. That's their opinion. Not everybody agrees with it. Not, not everybody, maybe some, maybe some don't, but you can't control that. So I just, I respected everybody, uh, you know, as a, uh, uh, you know, as, as a professional, you know, when I would see them and I didn't agree with them, I'd always say good morning, you know, you know, in the morning scrums or whatever it was. And I always maintain and tried to maintain a pretty healthy relationship uh, with everybody because of it. And, and, and basically just agree to disagree on certain points and, you know, and, and it, I couldn't control it anyways. And I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't have enough energy left to, to really kind of start to worry about all that. And it would be just to take away my focus from all the other things I had to do. So and, there's uh, a, there's a generation of, of, of fans out there that watch you now that don't realize that you really came from a hockey family. Uh, and your dad was a hell of a hockey player played in the Western league. I remember seeing your dad play in the Western league. Um, are those lessons that he would have taught you, or is that something that slats would have taught you or were there, were there people along the way that guided you with that stuff? John, you're, you're really right about uh, my dad. And uh, not only was he a, a good hockey player, and he, I think he led the, the defense in his league scoring a few times, but he also led them in penalty minutes. So yes. he, <laughs> hey, yeah, so he uh, he 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 played for keeps. Uh, no, I, I was so lucky to have and come from a hockey background, and and you know, not only have my dad as a coach younger, but then be a stick boy when they won junior national championships, and and watch him the way he treated players and the respect that they had for him because he was honest with them. 
He told them what they needed to hear. Um, he was protective of them. He was, uh, you know, a mentor. You know, I, I, I just can't tell you how many people still reach out to him. Not, and not only hockey players, but from the, from the kids that he taught in school, huh. still reach out to him and, and tell, uh, you know, great stories about my dad and what they meant, what, what he meant to them. But, you know, you, you learn a lot uh, from watching. You know, I, I had the great, uh, you know, honor of watching Wayne for all those years handle the press. Um, and, and how much attention was put on him every day to answer questions. And people would come from all over the world and, answer, and ask him questions that were so obscure and off base there. And never once did he ever kind of look at somebody and roll his eyes and, and say, wow, that is really a dumb question. Uh, he could not have been more gracious in, in the way he handled it. So when you're watching the world's greatest player do that, and you're watching the world's greatest player practice, be the hardest working guy in practice and work on his skills every day, well, maybe I should start working a little harder in practice. Maybe I should start working on my skills. And maybe I should talk to the press and have that much, you know, respect and patience with the press as well. So I think over time, in, like in anybody's career, you start gathering information and, and you start filling up your pockets with, with things that work and other things that don't. And, uh, you know, I had great people around me. Teddy Green, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, was an amazing leader in so many ways. Uh, Muckler. And Muckler, strategically, how much I learned from him and Glenn, you know what I mean, and the way he galvanized the team and all that. So, you know, uh, my dad was a huge influence on me, but I had many other people as well. Uh, we got to take a quick break. Mark Messier is with us, and we will uh, pay attention to the uh, Battle of Alberta, something that Mr. Messier knows plenty about historically. <laughs> we'll be back after these messages. Bob McCowan, it's John Shannon on the program. Mark Messier uh, is with us. Uh, I'd like to pretend that I'm, um, you know, I did a lot of research and I'm really knowledgeable about this stuff, but it's not true. Uh, I asked Shannon right just before you came on, Mess, how many times did uh, Edmonton and Calgary play in the playoffs? And you said, John, five? Five, yeah. It, and uh, by the way, Mark, doesn't everybody know that? Come on now. I mean, it, it, we're talking this. <laughs> but for, for some of us, this isn't research. This is life. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that, well, and, 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 and as Bob was talking, then I finally, I also realized, because there are stories about this this matchup, this rivalry, all the time is that in those early years in the NHL, when you guys were going and they were going, you used to play them eight times a year in the regular season as well. It wasn't just necessary guaranteed playoffs, but there was four at the Coliseum and four at either the Corral or the Saddle Dome. It was nuts. Well, uh, I can just say that those five series felt like 55 series. <laughs> and uh, and you're exactly right, John. Uh, we you know played eight times during the regular season, but don't forget – you know, back then, teams were trying to make a little money in uh, the exhibition series there, and they didn't want to travel too far for expenses. So I think one, at one point, one year, we played Calgary 19 times one year. So just just, just think about with exhibition, seven games in regular season. Uh, it's like, that's know, like baseball. And, and, and back then, there was nowhere, to, as we used to say, there was nowhere to hide out there. <laughs> 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 so if you're a guy who goes to, let's say, the Edmonton Oilers and you are from Ontario or a U.S.-born player or somebody, how quickly do you assimil assimilate the intensity, the significance of that rivalry? Uh, well, I, I think 
immediately because uh, anybody that you're going to be around living in any one, either one of those cities is going to remind you of, of what the importance of it. Uh, you over can't over, escape, probably. You can't escape it. Yeah, you know, I I had the good fortune of growing up in Edmonton and 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 seeing my dad, uh, you know, playing senior hockey and getting beat up by the Calgary. Uh, geez, Sam Peters, I guess it would have been. Yeah, I know it would have been Calgary. Was it Sam Peters, John? Yeah, yeah, it would have um, been. It would have been. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? And and with the Edmonton Monarchs, and then of course uh, the great rivalries they had with the Edmonton Eskimos and Tom Wilkinson, and and uh, and and so you know Calgary, Edmonton to me, and then playing junior hockey and and then feeling that and, and getting involved in it from the very early age, uh, you know, it was ingrained in me. It, it was something that I just knew so much about in the history and, and, um, and, you know, but as new players coming in, um, they can't help but get swept up into that emotion. Uh, it's just so important for both cities. Uh, there's so many great memories, even, but even new fans, um, that are coming into the game that weren't around when we played in the eighties and, and went through all that. And now it's been a quite a few years, um, still feel that rivalry with Calgary, you know, and, um, but it's, it's Bob, to, to be honest with you, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. It's, it's, it's real emotion. It's uh, real bragging rights. And, uh, and one of the things that made the rivalry even better for us or more important for us is that, you know, Calgary became a really good team. Uh, they were mm-hmm. building a team to try to knock us off. Uh, and I think, you know, you can have rivalries beca- between cities and, you know, and fan bases want to have the bragging rights at the, you know, the coffee table in the morning when they go to work and all that. But the reality is what really makes it that much more uh, intense is that both teams are really good, really competitive, and both looking and wanting to win the same thing. And that that's when the whole thing really explodes. How, how does it compare to Islanders Rangers? Very similar, you know, very, very similar uh, histories. Of course, Islanders, Rangers going back a little bit further than, than Calgary, Edmonton, and in NHL, but same kind of deal, same fan bases that are intermixed everywhere you live. You know, we got Ranger fans living out in Long Island. You got Islander fans living in the city. You know, you got all these intermingling of fans. And, and uh, even in households, uh, you could have a house divided by Ranger fans and Islander fans right in the same household. So, uh, it's just as intense, um, you know, and it, it, same thing when I came here, you know, I was thinking, you know, coming to Edmonton, Calgary, can't get any steeper than that. And sure enough, the first game, you know, as a Ranger against the Islanders Friday night at the garden, uh, you know, there was more fights in the stands in the WWE con- contest. It was, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody coming down after work from wall street and, uh, you know, a little lit up and wow, it was, it was really a fun rivalry as well. Just, I mean, just, just curious when, when you think of, and I know that you've been reminded a lot in the last three or four days because of the battle, and it's been 31 years. What's the first thing that comes to mind of the five series? Is there something that jumps out that you're, you, you grasp to first? Not really. Just we could see the, we could see the, you know, trajectory of Calgary uh, coming uh, over the years uh, before they ended up beating us in 86. Uh, they were, you know, uh, you know, assembling a team that was super talented. Uh, they were getting, they realized that, uh, you know, not only was Edmonton unbelievably talented, but uh, we're also, you know, pretty tough. Yeah. And uh, Edmonton never got pushed out of a team physically or out of a game physically. Uh, we could beat you in the streets. We could beat you in the alley. And 
Um, and Calgary recognized that. And so they started getting not only some amazing talented hockey players with <laughs> Neuendijk and Fleury and McGinnis and Suter and Vernon and Nett. And they also started to get in some guys that were some big, strong guys to be able to counteract, uh, you know, what we had in, in Edmonton. So, you know, um, it was just, it was just great hockey, to be honest with you. Every time I think back to it, it's not the one particular play, although the one particular play I do remember it was, uh, you know, Wayne scoring that slap shot over Vernon's shoulder, uh, I, that seems to be, you know, one of those iconic moments in that rivalry that uh, nobody saw it coming. And, of course, only Wayne could have put that puck where he did and score the winning goal. Well, and and, and let's face it, that was a, that was in Calgary. You won both games in Calgary and you came home and won the two games in Edmonton. And that was supposed to be a series that people wanted to go nine or 11 games. That was yeah. supposed to be the toughest, the best of the battles of Alberta of all time. And you guys dominated them four straight. Yeah, they weren't uh, they weren't quite there yet, uh, but they but we still felt that you know what I mean. And even though it was four straight, we didn't want to give them uh, we didn't want to give them any hope yeah. whatsoever. And I and I think that that game in particular, they really kind of sent you know that message that year. Anyways, uh, that uh, you know we we were still pretty strong and. We, of course, we still had the greatest player to ever play the game in our in our lineup, which oftentimes the difference maker in a lot of those series. Well, uh, and and not to not to uh, go down memory road here, but there are three events in the in the in the series that I remember. Obviously, you have to put Steve Smith and and Grant and Perry Berezan and Lanny McDonald, probably the toughest loss of of your professional career in game in the seventh game in the second round in '86. But then there was a Good Friday game in the '84 series that people forget. People forget that seven-game series in 84. It was as crazy as them all. But because you dominated game seven, people don't think it was that dramatic. And that was Good Friday. Lanny scored a goal in overtime to beat uh, to beat you guys. And he broke Grant's goalie stick in half, the blade of the goalie stick. He shot the puck so hard. And that was a crazy <laughs> – it was a crazy that – was, that was when – that was the second time you guys played. Because the first time you played, you played the corral and, and – um, you guys dominated like it was a five game series, but you could have won it in three. Um, and then, but the 84 series was the one where the real rivalry, the real battle of Alberta started and it was nuts. And it doesn't yeah. get any, it doesn't get any recognition because 86 was so strange. And then 88 was, you know, Wayne doing what he did. Yeah. I think the, uh, the, the one you're talking about in 84, uh, the seven is, was, you know, the rules are much different than two, right? It, it, was, yeah. just, it was just yes. crazy yes. tough hockey. I mean, you know, in order to get into uh, to port check, you had to go through a gauntlet of hooking and holding, and uh, every whistle was contested. And, oh, yeah, it was uh, – but, you know, it was just the way the game was played back then. And, uh, you know, as I said, in, in Edmonton, we, you know, we were comfortable in, the, in those kinds of games. We had our – and I think the difference for us is our star players played with a lot of courage. You know, Wayne was never going to shy away in a tough game. I mean, he could go into Philadelphia, and of course, he had a lot of support. And Yari would go to the front of net in tough games. Glenn Anderson was the fearlessest guy that I've ever played with. Uh, you know, Kenny Lindsman. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on about the t- guys that we had to come through there. But our best players were always really tough and tough games. And I think Calgary recognized that. And that's when they started going and getting some of the guys like Neuendijk mm-hmm. who would play in tough games. Fleury would play in tough games. Robert Suter, McGinnis, they would play in tough games. And if your star players 
won't play in tough games, it's going to be hard to win. I don't care how much nuclear deterrence you have, how many nuclear deterrence you have <laughs> behind you. Your star players still have to show, you know, some grit and determination and get into the scoring areas in tough games where you know it's going to be unpleasant when you get there. With uh, Mark Messier, um, you guys obviously back in the 80s were known as um, an electric offensive hockey team. And you didn't seem to care whether you won 2-1 or 7-6. But you have to be more than a little surprised at game one this year, uh, 9-6 between these two teams. And yes, Edmonton has highly skilled players. So does Calgary. But I don't think either team expected or wanted to be in that kind of a shootout. How surprised were you as it unfolded last night? Well, I think I was surprised. I think everybody was surprised, but in, in one way and another way, not. Oftentimes, funny things happen after two teams come off a seven-game series. There, Normally, you're so locked into this series in seven games, and you're so locked into that op- opponent. Next thing you know, the next day, you go into the arena, there's a different color uniform. It's a different kind of team. They play differently. And all those emotions that were wrapped up in the previous seven-game series are all pretty, you know, immediately dispelled. And now you got to ramp yourself up emotionally uh, for the new opponent. Now that shouldn't be a problem with with the, the next series for Edmonton Calgary because of the rivalry, you know, th- all the things in the history. So that point part should be okay for them. But it's a team that's going to be able to kind of level set themselves the quickest in these kinds of series that often have, you know, the best chance of winning because they can get off to a, to a good start. To me. Um, you know, I said that Edmonton's got a real chance in this series just because of uh, they can score goals and they can score goals in bunches. And uh, they showed that last night. Now, I also said that in order for the for the Oilers to win this series, there, uh, Mike Smith is going to have to have the same kind of numbers that he did towards the end of the year in the last month and also the first round of the playoffs. And if he, Mike Smith can do that, I give the good Oilers a good chance of uh, winning the series, even as strong and powerful and as deep as Calgary is, because it's hard to replace a goal scoring. Now, the flip side of that is Calgary's got an amazing goalie. They're big and strong and can play defense, and they got a just as maybe not just as much scoring as as uh, Edmonton, or but you could say just maybe it's maybe that's a soft. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, I think, you know, watching the game last night, I watched the whole game, stayed up and, and watched it. Um, you know, I, I, I thought going into the series there was going to be more of a special teams, um, you know, whoever could win the special teams was going to win the series. But, you know, Edmonton wasn't able to do much on their power play last night, especially, especially early. And, of course, still scores six goals. Calgary scores nine. And we're sitting there all scratching our heads and go, wait a minute, what happened to the 2 one three, two game, <laughs> game that everybody was expecting? <laughs> this looked like, uh, when I think we played Calgary one time and didn't we beat them 10-8 or Ten- LA or Vancouver yeah. or somebody 10-8? Wow. You, you beat everybody 10-8 at some point. Let's face it. When you <laughs> hey, So, okay, you, you know, you talked about Mike Smith, Mark Messier, coach of the Edmonton Oilers. I'm going to pretend I'm Steve Levy sitting on the desk with you and Shelly's going to chime, chime in at some point. And I'm going to say, okay, you, you've made your statement about Mike Smith. Mark, who are you starting in goal for Edmonton in game two? Oh, Mike Smith, 1,000%. Uh, not even a question. Not even not even question. They're going to go as far as uh, Mike Smith is going to take them this year. And they saw when he got injured, uh, you know, where the team went to. He came back, stabilized the team, actually played incredible down to – goaltending wasn't a problem for Edmonton down the stretch in the last month of the season in order to climb their way back out of it. And it certainly uh, wasn't a problem in the first round of the playoffs. So – that's why I said I, I'm giving Edmonton a chance if Mike Smith can get back to those numbers and play the way he did 
Uh, Edmonton's going to have a real chance. If you can get up to that 930, 928, uh, 930 per save percent. And and uh, one of the things that Mike does really well, and, and he got a lot of grief for it in that one game, giving the puck away, he controls the puck when the other team's dumping it in, much like Marty Brodeur. We had to gal- we had to formulate a game plan back in 1984 against Billy Smith because he moved the puck so well. Yeah. We had to we had to formulate a game plan in, in against uh, Marty Brodeur in 94 because he played the puck so well. Mike Smith takes a lot of pressure off that defense in Edmonton when teams uh, dump it in. And if you watch there, a lot of teams will dump it in and they won't dump it in so he can get to it so they can get on their forward check. So he does a lot of things for Edmonton. And if he can just, uh, you know, get himself to the point where he was, uh, Edmonton's going to give Calgary all they can handle. Before we let you go, um, <laughs> you, you still speak with such passion. And I know television's fun. But are you going to get back in the game? You're going to coach. You're going to manage. You're going to. Where, does is there a team that you you want to get back in that level? John, I, I you, you know there's business better than I do. It's it's all relationship driven. Yeah, you, you got to be in in with people that believe in you. You got to be in with people that believe that you can make a difference. You got to be leaving people that have the same vision and an idea of what the game is and 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 how it should be played. Uh, you know, I, I haven't found that yet. Um, and certainly no, nobody's approached me at that level there and managing, I was never really wanted to be a general manager. Um, it's not what I do best. Um, coaching, you know, I, I, I threw my hat in the ring there years ago. I don't know if that's in the cards, but at some level it's uh, in hockey with a team, uh, would be interesting to grab an oar and help, uh, you know, bring a championship to some city, but it hasn't happened right now. But, uh, Obviously, I feel I have a lot to offer, so we'll see what happens. Well, the game's better with you, in it, man? Thank you. Great to be on with you guys. Thanks, Mess. And uh, well, I'm we... glad to hear that you're talking to Gary and Don now, too. That's awesome. <laughs> Good, yeah. <laughs> well, 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 we'll see. <laughs> it's a thrill for them. I don't know about for me. <laughs> Continued success, Mess, and thanks so much for taking a bit of time for us. We greatly oh, yeah, appreciate no problem, it. Guys. Great to be on with you. Mark Messier, we'll come back and wrap after these messages. Our uh, thanks to Mark Messier for uh, joining us. Uh, but I tell you what, Bob, I got to tell you that that's as that's as energetic, excited. Uh, he was Mark was into that. He had a, he was having a good time. He enjoyed himself. Yeah, uh, I've talked to him on numerous occasions uh, on the program. I even had him in studio a couple of times on mm-hmm. the program, and um, he was very chatty today, and we thank him for that. Well, what I think, you know, what the, the, inside that interview, there were some really fascinating um, points that he made, particularly about how to deal with the media, you know, you know the, the, as you call it, media speak. You know, he, I, I think he, he gave a pretty good explanation of, what goes through the mind of an athlete or somebody in somebody of leadership when you, when you have that, have, have that scenario. And as you, you and I have talked about many times, you can see that every time a player has a microphone shoved in front of his face. Oh yeah. Um, we haven't talked about Tampa, Florida game one, game two goes uh, tonight. Um, these are pretty, these teams are pretty close in terms of overall ability, but was it evident that Tampa's history of success played a role in game one? I think so. Uh, I I think that when, 
Uh, you look at uh, the Lightning having played a really emotional seven-game series, um, and we're back at it quicker than most, that uh, uh, they were able to gut out the first period, truly the first period of play. Um, and, and Florida did not take advantage of its scoring opportunities. Vasilevsky did what he was supposed to do, and then... You know, the, the Stanley Cup champions, the machine just took over and took over. And remember, Bob, we, we talked a few times during the Toronto series about where's Kucherov? What's, what's wrong with Kucherov? Where, well, I'll tell you what. Kucherov showed up. <laughs> Kucherov was truly the difference maker in game one. And now you have to. Yeah, here's the fascination about this series. Game two goes on Thursday night. They have two days off and then play Sunday, Monday, back-to-back in Tampa. You know, the importance of game two tonight, more than ever for the Panthers, more than ever, because if you give that championship team two days rest and play two games in their arena, it could be a four-game sweep. I, and I'm not, I'm not being over-emotional. I'm not, I mean, there's a practicality of they better show up for 60 minutes in Florida tonight. They better be, be ready and raring to go because this series could be a lot quicker than people realize. It really could. Well, I, I mean, anything is possible. Um, the intriguing thing about Tampa is it, it seemed in the Maple Leaf series that when they needed to win, when they wanted to win, they found a way to do it. Mm-hmm. But they weren't adverse to kind of taking a night off because they got beat you know they got beat pretty good in the opener yes they did yeah you're no you're you're five nothing but in many ways the maple leafs were well right now it sure looks like they were hungrier than florida was well maybe maybe tampa maybe tampa got awakened uh by how tough that leaf series was because they were, yeah. you know, they were down three, two that's yeah. win the last two. So now we do, we do know coach have had the flu for game six and seven against, uh, uh, against the Maple Leafs. So, but he's wow. Was he spectacular in game one? It will be how, and, and you know what, there are some big names on that Panther team. Uh, Barkov, Huberdeau, uh, they, they've, they've got to be better. They've, they've got, they've got to reach down. They've got to learn how to win playoff hockey. They've had a, and, and as you know, and you've seen it in through your career, teams learn how to win in the playoffs. Yes, they do. And that's, uh, that's something that uh, Florida is going to have to do if they, if they want to challenge Tampa. Uh, meanwhile, Toronto Blue Jays lose last night to Seattle. And um, that's really not of any great concern. One game doesn't mean anything, but. Yeah, but it's Seattle. Team... Come on. No, but this, I, I don't know how good the Seattle team is going to be. They're, they're, they're not horrible. They're not going to be bottom of the of the American league, but, and you can lose any game, you know, this is baseball, you know, 60% you're in the postseason. Uh, it's not that way in hockey. It's not that way generally and generally in basketball. Uh, having said that, um, this dearth of offense that we have now seen really since the very beginning of the season, mm-hmm has become extremely concerning to me that while you have a few individuals who are turning it around, this team ranks near the near or at the bottom of producing with runners on base. Yeah. 
And I know our pal Pat Tabler keeps saying night after night after night, oh, it'll come around, it'll come around, it'll come around. Well, we're getting close to the end of May, and it hasn't come around. And Well, the old adage is 60 games, right, Bob? The old adage is tell, tell me at 60 games where this team is. Because then you have to figure out whether, you know, you have to start making tweaks and changes, right? Well, what concerns me more is that there isn't one guy who is, who's figured it out and the others haven't. It's pretty much across the board. Yeah. Uh, Vladdy's got a bunch of hits in, a, in games in a row, but he's still at 20, I think, 20 RBIs. Mm-hmm. Well, well, he Bichette, had uh, Bichette's a bigger issue, don't you think? Well, Bichette has hit the ball better, but, you know, where are the RBIs? Where, yeah. you know, um, Springer, you can make the excuse that a leadoff hitter is not going to get that many RBI opportunities, but the bottom of the lineup has gotten on base now and then. Uh, it's just their inability to uh, to generate significant offense. And I'm getting concerned that well, it may and, not come. And they can't blame the schedule anymore. They're getting plenty of rest day off today. So. And they can't blame starting pitching because the starting pitching oh, has been really good. Really good, yeah. Uh, we got to get out of here. Time is our enemy. Uh, tomorrow, he's back. Uh, Bruce Boudreaux will return as the va- head coach of the Vancouver Canucks. There was some question about whether that would happen or not. And there may be some who question his decision to go back. But we will talk to him about all of that tomorrow on the program. We hope you join us. For John Shannon, Bob McCallum, see ya. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.